HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. On today's show, we're going to get into some expert insights into sustainable agriculture in the mid-Atlantic. So last week was Future Harvest CASA, which stands for Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference. And I am in studio with Dina Liebman, the executive director of Future Harvest CASA, who is going to share some insights and takeaways from the conference. Dina, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I, are you exhausted, first of all? Because I feel like last week must have been your busiest week, right? It was definitely the busiest week of the year, and um, I've spent the past two days in my pajamas uh, <laughs> sleeping all day, but we made it. We had um, we sold 780 tickets. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of farmers. Oh my gosh. It's, um, it's about 120 more people than we've ever had. Huh. Um, the hotel was absolutely packed, and it, it just shows you there's this explosion of interest in farming from all walks of life yeah did you ex- did you expect <clears throat> that much of an increase like do you, do no. you have a, no it's just people just started signing up and yeah, yeah. And usually it peters out um after the early bird deadline and it just kept going and going and um we had a great media partner this year the um iheart radio mm. and um they advertised quite a bit and I just think the word is out that if you're interested in starting a farm or if you're an existing farmer and you want to sharpen your skills and um, step up your game, that this is the place to go and the organization to turn to. Right. Well, so on that front, before we, I want to ask you a lot about who the, who the farmers were that were at the conference and, and what happened. And, um, but before we dive into that, um, for listeners who don't know about Future Harvest CASA, can you just give us a brief history, um, kind of introduction to what the organization does? 
Okay. Um, I have a gift for you. Uh, after oh. 20 years, the board, um, which has been evenly split between the name Future Harvest and the name CASA, and uh -huh. thus have stuck it together for 20 <laughs> years, finally uh, fell on the side of just Future Harvest. So oh, you don't wow. even have to say the CASA anymore. <laughs> okay. Future <laughs> so Harvest. Like, introducing Future, future harvest. harvest. You heard yeah. it here first. Yes. <laughs> Exciting. Um, <laughs> Uh, that said, right. CASA does tell you what region we operate in, mm -hmm. which is uh, the four states of the lower Chesapeake Bay watershed, Maryland, uh, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, and the District of Columbia. Okay. And um, you do the annual conference. What kinds of other programs um, do you have in terms of su supporting farmers, training farmers? Like what? Um, well, we have quite a few. Um, education is our biggest sector. We also do research and advocacy, um, but really education is our game. Mm. And uh, we run the Beginner Farmer Training Program. It's the largest such training program. I think in the Mid-Atlantic, we have 80 tra 87 trainees this year. Mm. Um, that's up from just seven in 2015. Um, we run and that those are year it's a year-long program with three levels um and i can tell you more about that if mm -hmm. you're interested um we run the field school the chesapeake field school and that runs throughout the the mission area that i said earlier and that <clears throat> is open to the public all farmers and it ranges from advanced programming for established farmers to learn innovations from other farmers in either conservation, production, marketing, or um, it also has some beginner farmer um, programming as well. Mm. And the conference, which launches every year's program, and um, it's three days of intensive learning. And a lot of non-farmers go as well because they're just, we call them the agri-curious, mm. and they really just want to know who's who in the farming world they want to learn what the latest research is they want to learn what challenges farmers are facing in the area right and the farmers <clears throat> who attend the conference um do you have a sense of whether most of them are new and beginning farmers or do you think it, it's a mix of kind of all different levels well i just looked at the post-conference survey mm. And um, it is majority beginner farmers, but not as many as you would think. There hmm. are people, the, so the definition, the USDA definition of beginner farmer is up to 10 years. So you can get very experienced, established farmers who are still within that beginner farmer window. Um, and I would say that's about 55 to 60% of conference goers. And then a big chunk, about 45 Am I already over 100%? Um, <laughs> probably. But I, I just saw it on a bar graph, so mm. I'm not quite sure of the numbers. But there were, there were a lot of established farmers there as well. Hmm. And then, of course, a lot of established farmers who are running the programs and doing the training, um, right? The, the, you tap a lot of farmers to be the, be the yes. experts in the room. So once yeah. you've gone through our program, we never let you leave. Um, <laughs> Once you get established and you've got your markets and you've, you know, your business is humming along, then we ask you to come train other farmers, and many do. So it's this circle that just keeps on going. 
And then we have our elders who were the people who founded Future Harvest mm. 21 years ago, and they're still there. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so when you're planning the conference, how do you decide what the content's going to be? I mean, there's a wide range of different tracks. Um, is it, are you constantly thinking like, what are the biggest challenges farmers are facing and, and how do you decide like what to hone in on? That's a great question. Um, it's a, an art, <laughs> not really a science. We put a uh, request for proposals out to the public and we uh, are farming public and we ask them what they want to learn about and we get um, last year we got like 90 responses it was a lot um, we come through them the staff are expert farmers themselves and they go through and see what they think is um, um, relevant and would make good content we also have a conference committee Mm. of external stakeholders and they also um, help us figure out the theme usually and in a in a more overarching sense the the content of the conference but <clears throat> we have our ears to the ground day in and day out and so we know that like flower farming is huge so mm. we decide to have a full day intensive on flower farming plus a session during the main conference Hemp growing, we did a full day mm. of hemp, um, about industrial hemp. Um, what else? We, we've done, um, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think of some of the other big items that we wanted yeah. to hit on. There's value added. Mm. Um, there's a lot of beginner farmer sessions. A lot of money management, marketing, business training, those are always really important. Um, mm. And soil health, that has really captured the imagination of a lot of farmers and non-farmers alike that healthy soil can help farms become more resilient to flood and droughts and this extreme weather that's hitting our region or all regions mm -hmm. of the country. And it also has the ability to draw down carbon, atmospheric carbon from the air via right. plant photosynthesis and store it in the ground where it can actually be of a benefit to farmers and increase soil fertility. So it's, right. a, it's a huge win, 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 win. Right. Good for the farmer <laughs> in terms of economics, good for the environment. It's, yeah. Yes. Um, I saw, I mean, I, I was there for a little bit and I, there's definitely a lot on, um, in the program that address soil health. And, and a lot of times I think even, you know, it might not be about like the, the session maybe wasn't about soil health, but, the, but it came up anyway. Right. Like yeah. even, you know, we're talking about, I went to a panel on grains and, you know, but people are talking about, well, how do we grow grains in a way that builds soil and in, in the mid Atlantic. And, um, so it's, it's one of those things that kind of seems to touch, everything yes right so yeah. it's definitely incorporated into almost everything and it's just becoming um a lens through which people are looking at their farms and how to make them uh, produce more in a way that uh, works with nature rather than against it right and I, I would imagine too just to be for the farms to be more resilient in the face of how which much the weather is changing Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was the farm in the Midwest with the flooding. I mean, some of it 
got flooded no matter what. I mean, those floods were brutal. Mm -hmm. But there were some farms on the edge that really um, uh, always had their ground covered, had friable soil, and those were the ones that withstood the floods the best. Mm -hmm. Not perfectly, but definitely the best. Drought as well. We uh, we had a sort of mini drought here <clears throat> this summer, and the ones that had soil that were that was covered with. And when I say covered, I'm talking about with cover crops, uh, which is a non-commercial crop that's grown to hold soil in place. Right. Um, when there was residue plant matter on the ground, that those were able to retain water better. It that it requires less water. There's definitely less runoff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to go back to one of the things you said um, you did a full day intensive on, which is flower farming. Why is flower farming so popular among farmers in the Mid-Atlantic? You got me. (laughs) Is that a relatively new thing? Well, I think there's a a lot of... um, People are attracted to the beauty hmm. of flower farming. I mean, who doesn't like and flowers? And I think <laughs> I think there's a big market with the two big cities there. Mm. You do not have to pay attention to food safety right. issues, so you can use. Um, you, you don't have to worry about your compost not being fully composted if you've got right. uh, if you're growing flowers. There are just a lot of. Uh, food rules that you can sidestep when you're dealing with flowers. There's a lot of things about it that are easier and some things that are harder. I mean, keeping a floppy stem up, mm. um, <laughs> I mean, I could go into the details. It, it, it can get really complicated with horticultural meshes, that, uh, huh. nets that people have to sort of put crosswise so that the stem stays straight up. That's more for the advanced growers. Um, but yeah, it, it, this could become the Mid-Atlantic could become the next flower capital of the country. Huh. Um, it's that There's that level of interest, and, and they're being grown on small to mid-scale farms, um, and uh, florists are starting to source locally. Mm. You know, now a lot of it is sourced from South America. Yeah. And even farther flung. So, uh, no, it, yeah. that's a really interesting trend. And as I said, hemp is also something that you're going to see more and more of now that it's uh, legal. Right. Are there, were there a lot of um, conversations about um, regulatory processes when it comes to hemp? Like, I know that it's been hard, I think, for some farmers to figure out how to market. And, you know, it's, and actually, well, let me let you... <laughs> I was going to ask you another question without letting you answer that one. So <laughs> let you answer that one first. Yeah, hemp, you know, hemp has no psychoactive right. properties whatsoever. Um, I, I shouldn't say whatsoever. There might be a minute, minute amount. Um, so, but it was just heavily regulated anyway. And... Um, it is slowly being loosened up. You still have to get a permit to grow it. Uh, you have to register with uh, Maryland Department of Ag here, and I'm, I think in Virginia as well. Um, and it, it, so it's, it's not just like you go to the store and you buy hemp seeds and right. you put them in. Also, hemp is complicated. Um, it can be grown for several different purposes, for the seeds, which is used in food, um, the seeds can be um, squeezed for oil. Mm-hmm. Um, 
all of these require different varieties. Some people use hemp as what I mentioned earlier, cover crops, which smother weeds. Mm. Um, and also hemp can be used for its cellulosic material that um, for animal bedding, um, for making products. There's a dearth of processing facilities. So like you can grow all this hemp with yeah. all this fabulous cellulosic material, but there's no place to process it just yet. So this region really needs to catch up um, quickly there. So most people are growing for the oil and the seeds yeah. for hemp. I've been looking at that so much and, and wondering when someone is going to start building processing. I mean, hemp seeds for food are, I mean, they're such an amazing source of plant protein at a time when more people want to, you know, eat plant-based. Um, it seems like such an opportunity, but apparently there's just no processing in the U.S. right now, and so everyone's just selling it for CBD because that's yeah. basically the only market, right? So it'll be interesting to see if that changes. It's a chicken and egg kind of thing. Yeah. If they grow it, they will also grow the processing yeah. for it, um, we hope. Right. So also hemp is a heavy nitrogen feeder, uh, same as corn. So there's some trick to growing it in ways that are considered um, what we call regenerative or in healthy soil. Okay. Um, are most of the farmers that um, attend a conference like Future Harvest, um, are they mostly selling into um, at markets and CSAs? Are they like what? What's the sort of size of the most of the farms you work with? Or does it range? So the average size of a farm, I'll say in Maryland, which pretty much applies throughout the lower mid Atlantic, is um, 150 acres. So our size farms range, they can be from a quarter acre, actually they can be from a rooftop mm -hmm. to 200 acres for the vegetable farmers. And then we have some farmers that have thousands of acres that grow corn, feed corn and soy. Um, we work with those farmers on a completely different project, um, uh, running a mentorship program for conventional grain growers who want to transition to organic. Oh, wow. Um, that's a brand new project that's starting up at the University of Maryland. Oh, amazing. But they're two different audiences. Yeah. That's, two different mm. markets. They're just in completely different systems. So uh, Future Harvest was mostly grazers. Um, which could be on several hundred acres, to um, urban farmers. Mm. It, it runs the gamut. People think, oh, we're just the small urban farms for some reason, but we've always actually been focused on rural farms. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, and yeah. that's um, the, the project um, in terms of commodity growers. Um, is that, are you working a lot with farmers on the Eastern Shore? We will be, yes. Yeah. And we already have mentors lined up. We're running a mentorship program mm. that go coincides with the research that University of Maryland is doing. Um, uh, it's a really cool project, but it yeah. hasn't started completely yet. Okay. We're having our first <laughs> launch meeting, so I can't... I'm jumping ahead. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll come back next year or okay. two years, and I'll tell you all about it, because I think it's going to be really, really cool. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Dina from Future Harvest.
This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Forever Cheese sources a curated collection of unique cheeses and specialty foods from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. They have pioneered numerous important products that are now integral to today's market, including many under their brand Matika. Learn more at forevercheese.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm here with Dina from Future Harvest. We've been talking about sustainable agriculture in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about um, just like what makes the Mid-Atlantic unique in terms of agriculture a little bit more. But before we do that, um, anything else at the conference that stood out to you in terms of conversations that farmers in this region are having about agriculture um, from sort of a big picture perspective? Yeah, one thing that um, has really emerged um, for Future Harvest is that um, just the inequities um, of the whole food and farming system and that um, some of the best farmers in our region are farmers of color and they are subjected to a whole different set of obstacles in our system that um, are just so unfair and make it difficult even more it's hard enough just to be a farmer but to be a farmer of color um, in 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 the way credit is doled out how banks treat farmers of color has just made it even more difficult for farmers of color yeah and at our conference we always make sure that these issues are highlighted um, and we try to address them as much as we can um, and our conference is um, it, it's a, a, a very diverse audience and um, farmers of color really are our best presenters you know they they really share what they've learned and what they know and what they've um, been faced with uh, that are different than what white farmers have. Been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, one of the keynote speakers that you had was Leah Penniman. Yes. Um, and I, I, I heard a lot of conversations about how people were really, really inspired by, um, by her mm-hmm. talk. And um, she's been a guest, actually, on, yeah. <laughs> on the show, um, right when her book came out, Farming While Black. Um, so, and she's, she's incredible. And I think she really just inspires people. I've seen her speak a few times and every time it's just, she's just really, really inspiring. But, um, I guess in ter- maybe in terms of what Leah sa- spoke about, but also other conversations at the conference, like what are you hearing in terms of, um, solutions, like things people are doing to really confront the racial inequalities that, exist and change systems to make things better? That's a great question. Just uh, fix, can you just fix some? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> fix can you the, just fix, the fix you know, the thousands um, of years? <laughs> I think right now it's a awareness raising among, uh, I guess, white populations. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important right now. Um, and I think that um, I, I think doing our part to make sure that 
all farmers have access to technical resources, financial resources, land. Um, we have been so heartened in our beginner farmer training program. There are three levels, and a lot of people of color started in level one, which is um, for the agri-curious, mm -hmm. um, just like the, no, they don't have land, they haven't really farmed. And then they graduate to level two, which is a certificate program. They do 200 hours in the field with a commercial farmer. And, um, uh, and, and they do a whole classroom series. And then there's level three, where you have to have land. You have to be actually farming. And that's a mentorship program where we pay experienced farmers to mentor mm. um, begin the beginner intermediate farmers and we've just seen people graduate through the levels um, and there are a lot of farmers of color now in our level three yeah so this is it's not for lack of interest it's just been a lack of access to resources yeah um, I think and I'm just guessing here it would be better to talk to a farmer of color about mm. this but what I am seeing is that there is a real interest in returning back to the land. It was connected with slavery. It was connected um, with very painful um, history of being rejected from credit and loans and ha losing land to now people are, you know, saying we're, and, and then they just said, I'm just going to go to urban places. Right. It's easier to make a living, da, 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 da. And now there's this big return mm -hmm. to farming. And it's, um, it's just amazing. And so we just need to help people along this journey. Um, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I, that I'm really interested in is, um, at Soulfire, they have the reparations, um, program for land. And, um, I think, it's it's just getting started, and I think that'll be interesting to see where that goes. Um, because I mean, there's just so much land that is just stolen land, <laughs> and mm -hmm. I mean, seeing um, them actually being able to redistribute some of it little by little, it's really incredible. Yeah, there was a, a seminal article this past year written by the Atlantic, and it just describes how farmers of color were systematically discriminated against um, to the point of losing thousands and thousands of acres of land. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, well, a few things, but I, I did want to bring up, you have this campaign um, that um, has been, I think, ongoing maybe for a little while, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but um, it was it was very prominent at the conference, which is go grass fed. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how um, how did you decide to focus on promoting grass fed? And is it is it that there's a lot of people doing grass fed in in the Mid Atlantic, or is it we're trying to make more you know get more people involved in grazing? And um, what was the the inspiration behind that? So Future Harvest for years has produced this directory of grazers mm. um, who and it's called the Amazing Grazing Directory. It's on our website. Plus, we just re we updated it. Um, it was a massive effort, mm. <laughs> but now it's we, serious. It's like I, it's I got one. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot in there. <laughs> we have about 200 uh, entries into it, and we I don't I think we only have captured a, ca a fraction wow. of the number of grazers in the area. 
Um, it's because grazing is really good for soil health. It's mm -hmm. really good. If it's done right, it's absolutely essential for building soil health. And um, I could go into detail about that, but it's better just to go on our website and learn about the cycle of the you know, manure being um, creating organic matter, growing great grass. Really, grazers are grass growers, mm. grass farmers. Um, and it's also good for carbon sequestration. So um, we've always promoted it. It's an ecologically way, good way to farm. We have this directory, but the directory would just get published and there was no campaign behind it. And mm. so we decided to launch this Go Grass Veg campaign. We made a film, um, which is going to be on our website soon. We just premiered it at the conference. Um, and it features our star grazers in the area, plus our star chef, Spike Jurdy of Woodbury Kitchen. Um, and other ventures <laughs> <laughs> happens to be my uh partner in life just a little disclaimer <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, you know as a journalist he, i have to disclose that <laughs> yes okay he but he was remarkable in the film he, he just did a really good job i of, haven't actually seen it yet so <laughs> i'm excited <laughs> oh yeah you, you have to see it it's really yeah. well done it's a professional film um done by bar weissman so, um, uh, so there, and there's all sorts of other parts of this multimedia campaign that we're going to be doing. And mm. it's a really interesting time to be launching this campaign because of the plant-based diet right. trend. And people are like, why are you promoting farting cows? And it's because, um, it actually, I, you know, I think there are these large animal, confined animal feeding operations where, you know, that produces the meat that goes into most of our grocery stores. That's a completely different system. A grazing system is really important right. for carbon sequestration. And I, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Um, and so we really, really encourage people to eat less meat. Mm -hmm. And when they do eat meat, make sure it's uh, locally produced and grass-fed, grazed, right. and that and pastured pork, poultry. Eat less, but eat higher quality, locally produced and on pasture. Yeah, and so the the campaign is almost more about consumer education than about yes. farmers. Yeah, which we also do. Right. Um, in in the directory, does it so? I just looked at it briefly, and it's it tells you like where each farm is. Does it tell you exactly like where to buy? Like if I if I'm a consumer and I want to you know buy grass fed beef, does it does it tell you where they sell so I can just go and get it? Yes. Yeah. Um, each each entry has a blurb and it, and also the website and the website will tell you. Perfect. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting time to be talking about grass fed meat for that uh, reason. We've had a lot of conversations on the show about that because it's it's easy to say you know eat plants, don't eat meat. Because so much of the meat that's out there is this coming from confined animal feeding operations. But, right, it's, you know, there's also these amazing small local farms that are um, sequestering carbon and grazing. And um, so it's, it's the nuanced conversation is harder to communicate yes. <laughs> um, when you're marketing, right? Um, so um, I'm excited to see where that goes. Um, I'll just tell you a little anecdote. Yeah. My daughter... Um, is in college and she wrote and she says oh i've i'm a vegan now <laughs> and I, I just said over my dead body 
No, and you know, but then she made the very astute comment that college kids don't, you know, well, she said, and she goes to school in Europe too. She mm. goes, it's really hard to find grass-fed yeah. meat. And I said, but don't say you can't afford it because you just eat less meat. And when you do, you spend the money on a really good steak or burger every now and then. Right. Yeah. Once in a while. Yeah. Um, so is there, just um, before we wrap up, um, I just want to kind of come back to this idea of the Mid-Atlantic as an agricultural region. Um are there any specific challenges to agriculture in the Mid-Atlantic that um, come to mind that you heard at the conference or just you're thinking about as you do this work? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of challenges. Land prices, mm. um, huge. Labor for farmers, huge. Uh, those are the two, uh, two of the biggest obstacles. Um, Markets, we have great markets in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. and some of the larger towns, but it's still not enough. People still just go to the grocery store and you can get everything you need at a farmer's market, but you have to go and yeah. you have to be kind of uh, dogged about it. And it's just easier to go to the supermarket and, and pick up stuff. And I do a hybrid. Um, and but I also one of the things we're doing is starting a, a buying club for grass fed mm. meat. So if you're interested in starting a buying club, uh, go on the website. We're going to have a sign up there for people who want to buy a half a cow, a quarter of a cow with other people. And then you have a, a big stock in your refrigerator. Mm. But anyway, I digress <laughs> from the question. So. It, the markets, um, people, we just have to do more and more consumer education about the importance of buying from your farmers, um, making your food budget go farther, um, and buying higher quality locally produced food. Um, the Mid-Atlantic is also a patchwork quilt of farms. It, it's easier in Pennsylvania than in Maryland to find contiguous farms mm. where they can share equipment. They uh, form cooperatives in Maryland it's more scattered and there are there can be a large-scale grain farm next to a small diversified farm and that creates a, a, a more difficult system to to work within um, uh, the importing of cheap mass-produced food it's so hard to compete with those price points yeah. now these farmers are not getting rich right everybody says oh the prices are so high <laughs> they're they are struggling to make a living right. you know so that's why you you shop wisely and smartly and um you just don't pick up a ton of stuff you you plan out what you're going to eat and you and you shop for it at the market right well yeah and there's there's sort of two ways to think about that and and you know this idea of like consumers need to go to markets and support local farmers um what do you think about the idea of getting more local food into grocery stores and supermarkets? Like, is that just never going to happen? So we sort of need to just forget about that system and build our own, build, you know, different systems? Or do you think that that is worth pursuing, trying to get more of that food into grocery stores? I think it's, it's a challenge uh, working with individual farmers 
for like a Wegmans or a Giant to work with an individual farmer, it's just not how their system works. Mm. They, you can't just pull up to the dock, right? There's yeah. a huge semi there unloading, and then you get this farmer with their three crates of squash, right? Mm-hmm. So they would have to create a little dock, right, for small farmers and integrate it into their systems. Also, food safety requirements are really, really huge. It's, that's another big obstacle is um, even though small farmers are exempt up to $500,000 income mm. um, from food safety, it's required in most wholesale outlets. Um, so they have to get food safety certified. The price point is so low. So our farmers will sell into those markets if they can, but only their overage that they don't sell at market or through community-supported agriculture, Mm. which are subscriptions that a lot of farms offer to their produce, and you get a a set amount of vegetables every week. You have to pick it up or it can be delivered. Right. Yeah. I I think the CSA, that model has... um, and it's sort of changed over the years, and I want, I mean, are you seeing that as growth? Like, do you think more people are doing CSAs now compared to farmers markets, or do you see more growth in one as opposed to the other? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I'm just thinking about, like, in terms of growing the consumers' interest in local food, um, do you think that, like, farmers markets um, are more appealing, or CSAs, like, is one growing more than uh, the other? That's a great question. Um, I think CSAs flatlined for a few years Mm. and people were discouraged and I think they're on the upswing again. Mm. That's what I'm hearing totally anecdotally. Um, The Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments is tracking it more closely. Mm. So um, they have a report called What Our Region Grows and um, that's something to check out for more of the statistics. Um, Farmers market, we have more farmers markets in Maryland per capita than anywhere else in the nation. I read that somewhere. Somebody verified that that for me. (laughs) (laughs) But I think um, my memory can be faulty. But I think that's, I I need to verify that. But um, regardless, we have a high concentration of farmers markets. Mm. Their farmers complain that there's saturation, um, that they don't make what they used to make. They're also... The downside of our beginner farmer training program is we're turning out a lot of farmers, so the mm. competition is growing pretty stiff in certain places. Yeah. So. Well, so, right. It's just, I guess, figuring out how to get more of that good local food to more people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right, Dina, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. I totally enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritageradionetwork.
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.